0: Consider this, 100% of owners will leave their business one day, but few are prepared. Are you? Don't worry, you're in the right place with this podcast, Succession Stories. Host Lori Barkman, the Business Transition Sherpa, guides you from transition to transaction, from building value in your business to letting go. Lori is a business transition and M&A advisor, specializing in growth, acquisitions, and selling owner-led companies. She's also the author of the Business Transition Handbook. Get your copy and learn how to avoid succession pitfalls and create valuable exit options. Sign up for our Business Transition newsletter at SuccessionStories.com. Show us the love by subscribing to the show and posting a review. We appreciate you. Now, here's this week's Succession Stories with Lori Barkman. Werner spent the first half of his career at his family's company, Werner Ladder. During that time, the company completed six acquisitions and sustained 10% annual growth for over a decade. The family later exited the business in a successful leverage buyout. Now, as an independent consultant, Bruce helps owners address governance strategy, capital, and succession issues. He specializes in working with family businesses as an advisor and board member, and is also the author of The Ownership Journey. We talked about how a board of advisors or family board can help with the growth and transition of your business. The other topic we delved into is life after the deal. Most people spend their whole lives running their business and thinking they will retire and move to Florida. It doesn't actually work that way. For most people, it's harder than running your business. Two great quotes came out of our discussion. It's not about getting the right answers, it's about asking the right questions. The other is you can make more money, but you can't make more time. If your goal in life is to have no regrets after the sale, what are the things you need to address now, at work and in your own mind to be happy about your business transition? This is an awesome episode for any business owner who is thinking about future transition at some point, which pretty much means 100% of you. Grab your pen, take a listen, and maybe listen to it twice. Enjoy this Succession Stories episode about the ownership journey and life after the deal with Bruce Werner. Is this the year to sell your company? Don't leave your exit to chance. Stony Hill Advisors works with entrepreneurs like you to get ready for what may be the biggest transaction of your life. Learn what your business is worth by visiting StonyhillAdvisors.com slash podcast. Bruce, welcome to Succession Stories. I'm excited that you're with me today. Thank you for having me. It is great to be here today. We are going to have a really interesting conversation. It's not often that I talk with people who have done both sides of the table in terms of transactions, buy side and sell side, and you've been part of a family business for multiple generations, and also you work with business owners to help them in their next phase of their entrepreneurial journey. So let's start with you. Tell me about the succession story for your family business. Thank you
1: for asking. So we owned Werner Ladder. We actually had three businesses, the largest climbing equipment company in the world. We were the largest independent aluminum extruder in the country. And so if you drove a car, or were in a building in New York, you probably used our products and didn't know it. We also had a property and casualty insurance company. And over 80 years, we were very fortunate to grow a big business, but our markets changed and I was raised saying you can never sell the family business and one day lo and behold we woke up and two customers were 40 percent of revenue and the business was about taking care of the family and I will often say families choose business first or family first inherently we chose family first the business was an asset to protect the family we wound up making the right decision at the right time for the right reason and for the most part, 23 years later, we all pretty much get along. And so we, uh, we did not make a decision quickly. We spent a couple of years, we had a lot of outside consultants. Eventually found someone who worked well with us. We had good advisors and we were just, because we're all engineers, very analytical about it. And eventually, while very difficult at the time, you know, looking back, I've consistently said, we did the right thing to protect the family. You know, each family situation is unique. I would encourage people to focus on the process that they're going through and get good advisors. Because while it's the first time for you, it's not the first time. And we should learn from those who have walked before us. And then, you know, history rhymes, but doesn't repeat. As Mark Twain said, you know, take those snippets and learn. How do you optimize it for your own circumstance?
0: What was the circumstance for your family? How many family members were in the company at the time? Sure. So we had
1: 10 insiders, four dads and six sons in the boardrooms. The dads were second generation, grew up in the business. My dad had one job for 45 years. The six sons, you know, we had three roles. You had to work somewhere else first. You started at the bottom and uh, worked your way up and you worked for your uncle, not your dad, because we were so big. So... Two of the cousins were M&A guys at Goldman Sachs. One was CFO of a public company. I had started a company at age 25, and one cousin was a corporate M&A attorney. One built one of the largest steel plants in the country, so no shrinking violets. I think only one of us didn't have at least one graduate degree. We were fortunate all all were going to do something. So we had 10 insiders, but we had 110 shareholders spread across five family trees spreading from Paris to LA. So we had a number of, I'll say, aunts, you know, widowed aunts who depended upon the dividend for their livelihood. it from we had family members who had very successful careers, having nothing to do with the family business. And so we tended to take best practices of public companies. So we had a defined dividend policy. We had a very Detailed annual report. We had very detailed communication to the shareholders because we were fiduciaries and we acted like fiduciaries. Our top management team, I said we had 10 family members. We also had 10 non family executives who were critical for our business. So the top management team was actually 20, which is huge. But those non family people grew up shoulder to shoulder with my dad and his brothers and built the business that my generation was able to come into. So they were valued and respected and they they knew all the family garbage going on. They were great mentors to us. And, you know, as I always say, we were successful because of our people. It's not because we were magical. You know, it's because of them I went to college. Everyone knows business is about people and this is just another example.
0: How many employees did the company have towards the uh, the last phase? at the
1: peak we had i believe 3,500 employees we had seven manufacturing plants in the us we had 11 licensees to distribute around the world we had seven eight nine ten unions we had steel workers and machinists and teamsters and unaffiliated we had we went through horrific labor strife in the 70s and 80s we were shut down for six months i remember you know my uncle Trying to go to work and someone pulled a shotgun on the picket line and you'd wake up in the morning, there'd be broken glass on your driveway So we were our headquarters was in Western Pennsylvania, which is steel and coal country. You know, these stories are from a um, for a large part, a bygone era, but very well known in American labor. Um, and so you know, that's a component of of where we came from. It's you know, far from Silicon Valley.
0: Yeah, very far. Actually, the Homestead Act was named after just that little town of Homestead, just across the bridge from where I am.
1: I'm uh, intimately familiar with the goings-on of Morgan and Carnegie and uh, Frick and all those guys.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The company conversations, I can't even imagine the boardroom. You had a fiduciary board and a family board?
1: We had a traditional fiduciary board. As my generation came into the business, let me distinguish business governance from family governance. I know you want to talk about governance later, but they are two separate things they need to develop on their own corporate governance tends to develop first successful families have family governance and family governance is typically a couple components there's a family assembly where it's everybody and it's educational there's a family council which is the body which conveys the wishes of ownership to the management team you know as between them the fiduciary board and the business takes directed from the ownership group to run the business. As owners, you only make a handful of decisions. What business am I in? Who runs the business? How do I fund it? What do I want from it? And one or two other things. Other than that, as an owner, you're done. Now, most families choose to employ themselves to run the business, view their W-2 and distributions as their policy. And so it gets confused. But at our size, we had to run we needed to be professionally managed. And so as my generation came in, we used to have kids, we would have annual family meetings and we would take a hundred people to this great place in Longboat Key, Florida. And the the guys, as we would say, uh, would have business meetings all day, but then the families would meet every night. It was a way for all the, all the relatives got to know each other because we were spread all over the country. And we wanted the kids to know each other and develop the The good relationships and so that is what would be called a family assembly we bought a business in florida a long time ago and florida has this unique law that the annual corporate meeting must be held in the state of florida seems reasonable since we were all northerners and it was pretty damn cold in pittsburgh we thought february was a great time to have a meeting in florida and everyone everyone managed to be available
0: Gee, go figure. That sounds like a great idea. Good for Florida to figure that out and good for you guys to say yes to it. So there's the family assembly, which is different than the family council. Correct. So the family council, what's the mission of the council?
1: So the family council is a small body. It's the bridge between a large, diverse ownership group and the board of directors of the business. They need to have the business smarts to get the family to come to positions that can be communicated to the business. And it's it's issues like, do we wanna go do an acquisition or not? How much risk do we wanna take in the business? Are we willing to take on a huge loan to go get into a new product line? Are we happy with what they're doing with the business? Do we want more current income or do we wanna focus on growth? If the family has, has issues like we don't want to be in certain businesses. You know, from an ESG perspective, we won't don't want blood diamonds or cigarettes or or munitions. As an ownership group, you can say we don't want to do that, but you need to communicate it in a way that's effective and And so the family council is that it's kind of like a board of directors for the family. They don't have a vote, right? They have an obligation to be this in between because if you have a very large family with diverse opinions you got to go herd the cats you know if it's one parent and three children it's the dinner table so a, a lot scale matters as families grow they get more complex there's more diverse opinion you need you need more governance and it's always true that if everyone grew up under the same roof it's pretty simple when you grow up with different parents, different parts of the country, different communities, your life experiences are different. So we had a couple sets of cousins that grew up uh, in a wealthy community in Chicago, very metropolitan. And another set of cousins that grew up in a very, very small town where you did not wanna stick out. You wanted to blend in, you didn't want attention. the kids in the city, you know, there's different drivers on behavior. And so different personalities, you know, we we do things differently. That's, you know, you need a mechanism to uh, keep the wheels on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And what size companies, what size revenues does a company typically become before they say, we need a fiduciary board or we <coughs> need a, a family board of some great, sort? Great, great
1: question. So in my current practice, I help Visit private businesses form and run boards of advisors and boards of directors. There's a lot of uh, observation that when businesses hit 25 or 30 million revenue, people start asking the question or their friends start telling the owners, you gotta be thinking about a board. There's nothing magical about that. It's really about span of control. Up to 10 million million, one one person can, a competent person can run a business. You start pushing $30 million, it's typically one or two people in charge, and there's not much management. What happens is you don't have enough time and enough hands. More importantly, you only have your own experiences, and the challenges you have require broader experiences. And so you need other opinions. And that's what drives, I need to go talk to outsiders. Now, you know, there's Vistage, there's YPO, there's EOS, there's lots of those. CEO, peer groups, and they're not all the same. And those are all great. Um, in some cases, those serve as that board of directors, especially in Vistage. Um, and if it does, that's great. Um, that's not a reason to join one of those groups. Um, a real board has a different function. You, you know, People form boards when they, they say, listen, I'm looking out three to five years. I see issues. I don't know how to solve them. I need help dealing with a three- to five-year issue. If sales are down this year, boards can deal with that, but that's not why you form a board. You form a board because you're thinking about the future, and boards are like a bespoke suit. It's custom-fit to you. To you. We, we've all seen annual reports from public companies and all the things they have in there, and that's necessary for a public company. It's not true for a private company. You should do what helps you and forget the rigmarole. Uh, And so I say there's three or four types of advisory boards. Um, There's consulting boards where you, you pay a per diem and you bring in some people for a day or two a year on certain issues. That's kind of like the starter kit. There's junior advisory boards where you have the typical four meetings a year, some interim stuff, but a narrow set of issues really on growth, capital and developing talent and you stay away from all the sensitive issues about management compensation, performance review, family politics, that's third rail. And then a full advisory board substantially mimics a fiduciary without the vote. It's a little gray on like, are we gonna review CEO performance? Are we gonna talk about the family compensation? That's situational dependent, I've seen, I've seen it handled many different ways. It's, it's really about what are the owners want and help? You know, the outsiders you bring in are going to, they're going to look for signals on what they can talk about. Um, the better ones will say, just tell me up front what's out of bounds, right? Tell me the rules. Um, most will watch for cues and they'll kind of probe. But um, as owners, you know, you get out of it what you put into it. Um, and so I always start with, it's a needs assessment of what are the needs and then let's design a form a board for those needs, knowing that your needs change over time, we refresh the board, we reposition. It's a living, breathing organism and it needs to be managed like that.
0: Who is your most important customer? The person who buys your business. Stony Hill Advisors works with owners to maximize the value when you're ready to sell. Get started today with a business valuation by visiting stonyhilladvisors.com podcast. That's really interesting. So when you're hired to help a company create a board of advisors, do you go into it with the open mindset that it could be one of those three types, a consulting, a junior advisory, or a full advisory?
1: I go in with a blank piece of paper and a curious mind. There's a question of what are their needs? And then in one sense, what will they tolerate? If it's a first time, bringing an outsider to the first time is a test of the character of ownership. I don't mean that in a negative way. You know, some people are more open-minded about it. Some are very close to the vest. What's important is to understand what, how they are and adapt to that it's certainly okay to suggest you might want to be a little more open here or there. Um, Or, you know, you, you, you may be better off by being receptive to information, but you got to start with where, where are they today and recognize it's evolutionary. Where are they today? How do we get them on a good path? Where can we get them to in the future? Do they want to go there? I mean, it's nobody says you have to double your business. You have to grow. You can, it's your asset. You can do whatever you want. Just need to be honest about
0: it. Do you see any patterns or any differences between a founder looking for an advisory board versus next generation relatives, maybe two or three siblings together? And what are those dynamics?
1: So there's a tremendous amount of literature and research on the generational differences. So now, let me just use you know our family as a very common example. Our founder, the more I think about what he did in his life with a sixth grade education, it's just incredible. He just had that what we now call that X factor to do things out were unthinkable against all odds and press forward um and you know, the true entrepreneur in the you know, the classic American way. You know, with the second generation, first of all, your problems are different. You're not worried about staying in business. You're worried about managing growth and developing talent. It's a different set of challenges. And also, if you're the founder, you don't call a vote you do it when you've got, you know, typically siblings in a second generation. There's always a negotiation. The fact that you had the same mom makes it easier. You know, typically. Um. You know, in our case it's typical, there were four siblings that divided the business into four parts, and you, you know, you, you didn't step on the other guy's turf and everyone got along. Fortunately, they were talented and they loved each other and it worked. Put me through college. Um, if the siblings don't get along or can't communicate, you know, um, that's why a lot of businesses leave, you know, exit family ownership in the second generation. Third generation is different. Um, one of the factors is if the family has had some success. They didn't grow up starving, like the founder typically did. They've had the they've had the benefit of the effort of the prior generation. Their worldviews are different. They say, "I can I don't have to go in the family business. I'm going to do something else." They typically have good education. So, in each generation, the point of view is different, and in the same way that the challenges are different. The challenges for a third generation with a bigger business, more business risk. If you if you have a bank loan, you know, if you have a hundred million dollar bank loan, it's different than borrowing a hundred thousand dollars, more complexity. Um so the so the real question is, is each generation up to the challenge of their generation? And while they should learn from the past, going forward, they need to create a new answer. Um, and that determines if the business prospers and, and goes on.
0: So should business owners pick people that they know and that they're friends with or should they create a recruitment strategy? I'm probably leading the witness.
1: (laughs) Uh, So that goes back to consulting boards, junior and full advisory boards. The consulting boards tends to be some evolution of your golf buddies. And and that's okay if you're uncomfortable with outsiders, you want to take a baby step. It's a place to start. I've often counseled people, just have one meeting. Don't commit. I'd say, I want to have one meeting and just, you know, try it. You'll like it. You pick three people, two are great. One needs to go. Great. You've learned, you've moved forward. That's okay. Um, depending upon the size of the business, the needs and the complexity, uh, you want to be more formal with the search process. the The things to remember are what are the issues I'm trying to solve? Who's going to be bring experience with that issue? And who wants to have an impact when you go to bring outsiders in if they're doing it for the money you got the wrong person the really good outsiders do because they want to have an impact they want interesting things to work on and they want to work with interesting people those are the people who do the best job for the owners um, and the money is uh respects them for their time and there's well-established compensation surveys for outside directors so it's not a question of What's the job worth? That's well known. Um, But you're doing it for people who have a passion for having that impact. Um, And the more advanced and sophisticated you are, the more you realize you want to run a search just as if you were hiring a new CEO from the outside or a new CFO from the outside. You're looking for the right talent for the need. Um, But some people need to evolve to that point because they're just not used to having outsiders telling them what to do
0: and that's okay. Yeah, one of the things I saw you you wrote is noses in, fingers out, sensors on. Can you talk about what that means?
1: Yeah, so when I um, I started doing board work in my late 20s, first the family business and since then I've been on 10 or 12 or 15 boards. Uh, there's a great, there's a couple of trade associations for people interested. One is the National Association of Corporate Directors, which is really focused on public companies. If you're in the private company world it probably not as good a fit but a really great one for private companies is called the private directors association it started seven or eight years ago there's 3,000 members that are in 20 cities it's a volunteer organization has great resources great training um and that's where i learned this expression which kind of it makes it really simple what are you supposed to be doing as a director is in means you ought to be poking your nose in looking for trouble, but not making any Um, ask insightful questions, kind of push and prod a little bit fingers out. Meaning is you're not management. You know, most people who do this have run businesses are used to being take charge and get it done in an action plan. Wrong. You don't want to cross the line from director to management. And that is a learned skill. You need to unlearn your natural instincts. Um, If you're qualified to be a director, you probably have to go wrestle with this, unless you're coming out of academia or something like that. Uh, Sensors on. The original phrase was noses in, fingers out, the new phrase as the sensors on, which is, um, you need to have antenna up to anticipate issues. Don't wait until the phone rings and say, hey, we got a problem. It's You know, I spent a lot of my time thinking about like, well, where where does this situation take us to? The the most important thing you can do as a good director is ask a question that changes the conversation. When people go, oh, and then they just stop. That's one of the best things you can do because, you know, one of my favorite quotes is it's not about getting the right answers. It's about asking the right questions. You know, as a consultant, my job is to ask the questions that make a difference. Uh, if you do that, you know people don't know how to solve problems. Let us have them solving the problems that matter.
0: Right? Are they working on the wrong things? Good questions. Right. Lean to working on the right thing. There's so much that we've talked about today that I, I know we could go deeper. Maybe we have you come back on. So many business owners ask me about this topic of creating a an advisory board and. It's a very relevant topic for companies, as you said, in that in that revenue range of about 20 million and, and how to think forward. Another part of thinking forward is succession planning and what I like to call transition planning. And I, of course, work with clients to help them think through that. In your experience, you've met many business owners, you've you've served on boards and you've seen it up close with your family, that what happens when you've moved on can be disappointing. Some people say it's bittersweet because they've let something go that they was really meaningful to them a part of their life a part of their identity and many people walk away feeling unhappy and it's it's hard to believe because they have you know quote unquote all this money now right they should be so happy can you share some stories that <clears throat> illustrates this point
1: yeah so i actually do a lot of work with what i generically call life after the deal so you talk about did I separate management succession from ownership succession we spoke about ownership succession management succession is kind of a different subject let's leave that one aside um I have very strong feelings and have tremendous op- have had tremendous observations of what happens after people sell and leave their business and the most striking example for my parents generation so um we had a rule that you had to retire at 65 and we partially time the sale of our business. My dad's a twin. So of the four siblings, there's two twins. We, you know, part of our time was driven of let's do it so that they can retire at 65 and have a traditional retirement that had value to our business. So um, when they retired, they moved to Florida, do all all that kind of stuff. And I'm talking to dad one day, he says, you know, it's really kind of strange. You know, we're on the East Coast. There's a lot of New Yorkers down here because of where they were. And there are these guys who are captains of industry, titans of Wall Street. They've got ungodly wealth. And they've had tens or hundreds of thousands of people working for them. And they're dead in six months. And and he's saying, you know, so you go from having people waiting on you hand and foot, you know, the wave of a hand you control lives. And pardon me, but you're just another old guy at Starbucks. Nobody cares. Um, and he had several friends where literally they, you know, and, and so the lessons and I have got, um, I have some writings coming out and have some doing some client work specifically. And, and just before coming on with you, I was in this conversation with a client of, you know, you need to have a purpose. You need to have an identity. Those are typically locked up in your job. You certainly need to have financial security worked out. Um, you need to think about what's your legacy, what do you want your legacy to be? And the last one is, what about the people who made you successful? And so I, you know, in my first book, the last chapter was Life After Deal, I say, you need to start planning three to five years ahead. You need to make a list of what are you afraid of? What do you like to do? You need to run a series of small experiments and give yourself permission to fail, to figure out, what am I going to do when I don't go to the office anymore? It is a new job. I don't care how successful you are in your current business. This is a different challenge that requires a different set of skills. If you had a successful business, you can figure it out. But you need to purposely apply yourself, and every natural instinct you have says don't do it. Um, uh, in our generation, unlike my parents' generation, my dad's 92, he's had 30 years since he retired. How the hell are you going to fill 30 years when you're not going to the office? He's a great role model. He's done a magnificent job. That's what worked for him. I'm not suggesting what works for him works for someone else, but y- you need to figure out your own path. Um, and getting taking ownership for that and getting started with it, I submit is way harder than running your business. If you have a successful business um, and you can't pull a book off the shelf, there's a couple books written about it, um, but not a lot. Um, when I talk to wealth advisors and financial advisors who counsel families, they say, this is still one of the biggest issue they see. It doesn't matter how much money you have. Um, Money often makes it harder because it blinds you to the, the the issues have nothing to do with money. It's what's my purpose? You know, how do I identify? Very importantly, what's my social structure? If you spend 60, 70 hours a week in the office, who are you going to talk to for 60 hours a week? You know, my mom said, hey, for better or worse, not for lunch. I spent 45 years having a life because you were never here. I'm not giving up bridge for you. You go figure out your own thing. Um, <laughs> again, from a very traditional you know, marriage, um, it's really true. Now there are serial entrepreneurs who they'll, they'll buy, build, and sell five, six, seven businesses. You know, so they don't have the traditional retirement. My comments are really people are somewhere on that traditional path that at some point they're not going to have responsibility. You know, they want to go into let's slow down a little bit phase. I have a couple clients like that. They want, you know, I want to be in the office halftime. I don't want the, don't call me for every HR complaint, but, you know, don't spend more than X without calling me, which is perfectly good. You know, th- that actually segues really well to figure out the next stage because they, just the traditional, you walk out on Friday with a gold watch and never coming back. That's probably the hardest way of doing it. And um, for people who run their own business that doesn't work too well.
0: Yeah, that really resonates with me. I have a client and he's just said to me recently that working on this 10-year transition plan that he and I have put together and thinking about that and those next steps in his entrepreneurial journey, he's a founder, is so much harder than the steps to build the business. And I, I thought it was really interesting he said that and it dovetailed really closely to what you said. And yeah, taking the time to think about the identity outside of work, the relationships outside of work, that role that you have outside of work, and creating these pull factors to pull you towards your next next thing versus feeling like you've been pushed out. And how can we help people avoid ultimately what we we want to avoid is that feeling of regret. I know Daniel Pink has done a lot of research and writing on regret lately. We'll probably be hearing about that more in the media. And regrets are things you can't get back because time you can buy things, but you can't buy more time. And so whether it's the things you do, it's the things you didn't do, right?
1: Yeah. And and so I'm just gonna echo back because uh in my work, I say the goal is to have no regrets. It's a common phrase I use. You know, another quote I like is you can make more money, but you can't make more time. So I always tell people, um, figure out how to use your time, you know, as long as with the business isn't you know at risk of failing you're not you know under stress you know financial duress it's about time uh and as you age time becomes more precious and also your priorities tend to narrow and the things you used to tolerate you just don't tolerate anymore that's part of that's a biological process um yeah and so uh focus priorities How do I want to spend time, Um, you know, when we get to the last stage of life where we don't have our vitality uh, and we're still kind of with it, you spend a lot of time looking backwards because you're not really looking forwards. How do you be happy then? Sure, we made some mistakes, but for the most part, it was pretty good. I wish I didn't do this or that. But, you you know, to say it was a life well lived and I'm proud of it, you know, that's the blessing you're hoping for.
0: Absolutely. Well, you did share a couple of quotes. Are, are those your favorites that you wanted to share with, with me today? The,
1: yeah, those are the ones I tend to repeat the most often. So um it's about it's about asking the right questions, not asking the right, not getting the right answers. And you can make more money, but you can't make more time.
0: Absolutely. Bruce, if people want to get in touch to learn more, what's a good way to find you?
1: Thanks for asking. So my website is dot W-E-R-N-E-R. We don't make cartoons like Warner brothers. Um, uh, and my email is Bruce at Kona advisors.com K O N A A D V I S
0: O R S.com. Awesome. Is that your favorite coffee?
1: Uh, no, actually the story was, uh, I needed a name for my company and I wanted, I wanted a story, you know, alma mater, dogs, kids, I couldn't come up with anything. And I'd spent, I've been Hawaii 10 or 15 times, kind of fond of it. And, uh, I just wanted a name I didn't have to spell on the phone and people would remember. And so I uh, was stuck in a snowstorm one day and the lawyer asked me, I said, well, I'll try this and I'll bury the name if it doesn't work and have a, I have some Hawaiian on my voicemail. One day I got a voicemail, like, you know, it's the middle of February, it's miserable outside, but I heard your Hawaiian and for just a minute I was on the beach with palm trees swaying and blue water and white sand and I just felt so good. That's why I knew I had the right name
0: that's the right name. If you had one thing, one thing that you wanted to recommend to a business owner who's listening, who's been thinking about creating a a independent board, what's the one thing they should do?
1: Be honest about what they're really trying to get done.
0: And then call you. Please. That's two two things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Really be honest with what they want to achieve. That's great advice. Bruce, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you. Enjoyed our conversation. And I'm sure we'll talk again. Thanks. Bye, everybody. Listeners, thank you so much for your support. Catch Succession Stories on your favorite podcast player on YouTube and subscribe to the show. If you want to maximize the value of your business and plan for future transition, reach out to me for a complimentary assessment at meetlauriebarkman.com. Join me next time for more insights from transition to transaction. Until then, here's to your success. I hope that today's episode resonated with you. What actions will you take as a result? If you want to grow, sell, or transition your business, our strategic transition planning process provides clarity and objectivity on the big questions that may be weighing on your mind. Make an intention and take the next step. Set up a complimentary consultation with me to discuss your goals at thebusinesstransitionsherpa.com. That's thebusinesstransitionsherpa.com.